What is truth? Pilate asked, perhaps not as a serious question since he did not wait to hear Jesus' answer. Yet his question epitomizes an age-long query that arises in the human mind and has been the object of many discussions throughout the history of philosophy. End quote. That's a quote from today's book by Roger Nicole. And while Pilate may not have taken his own question seriously, the authors in today's collection of essays do. They all contend for the scripture and truth. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, I review Scripture and Truth, a collection of 12 essays edited by D.A. Carson and John D. Woodbridge. Scripture and Truth is a Logos free book of the month. You can choose to buy it for $25.99 in Amazon Kindle or you can choose to download it for free in Logos if you do it before November ends, which is less than 10 days from today. Scripture and Truth, uh, 446 pages, published by Baker Academic. The first edition was published in 1983. Today, I review the second edition, which was published in 1992. In the preface to the second edition, the editors wrote, I quote, The issues treated in the old edition have not vanished from contemporary theological debate. Today, scholars continue to address questions such as these. What is the nature of truth? How have Christians viewed the authority of the Bible during the last two millennia? What are ways to interpret scripture in a responsible fashion? These questions have, if anything, taken on greater prominence in the Christian community. For this reason, the demand for scripture and truth has not abated. End quote. 30 years on, this book reads as if it was written for today. It's a classic in the making. Speaking of classics, have you watched that Akira Kurosawa movie, Seven Samurai? A village hires seven samurais to protect them from bandits. Each samurai has their own expertise and style. The Seven Samurai, the movie, was later adapted into the Western, The Magnificent Seven. In that movie, we have gunslingers instead of sword wielders. We can arguably trace the influence of the Seven Samurai in movies like Star Wars or even The Avengers. In today's book, we have the editors assembling a team of 12 warrior monks or writers to do battle to protect the church against a great threat. Instead of guns or swords, they wield pens and typewriters. Remember that this was written in 1983. Each writer has their own expertise and style, and the result is 12 battle essays from a witty dozen. The doctrine of scripture that we know to be true today is thanks to the ink spilled by them and others like them. The 12 essays can be divided into three groups. And as I read through the names of the people who wrote those essays, uh, check whether you can recognize those names. In the first group, we have biblical essays. Here we have five essays from Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson, Richard Longnecker, and Moises Silva. In the historical essay group, we have four essays from Philip E. Hughes, Jeffrey Bromley, Robert Godfrey, John Woodbridge, and Randall Balmer. 
The third group and last group consists of three theological essays from Roger Nicole, Paul Helm, and J.I. Packer. If you are not aware of these names, if you don't recognize these names, then let me just tell you that these are a list of extremely distinguished scholars in the church. Also note that 40 years have passed since Scripture and Truth was first published. In 1990, Philip Hughes returned to the Lord, Jeffrey Bromley in 2009, Roger Nicole in 2010, J.I. Packer uh, last year, and Richard Longnecker passed away in June this year. Forty years on, and their words continue to speak to us today. You can take this classic collection of essays as a sampler. Who knows, you might find your next favourite author here. To keep this podcast manageable, I pick one essay from each group, and hopefully this will give you a sense of what to expect from this collection. From the five essays in the biblical group, I chose D.A. Carson's Redaction Criticism on the Legitimacy and Illegitimacy of a Literary Tool. If you are familiar with redaction criticism, then please let me explain what it is to those who are not familiar. All right. So what are the tools of a carpenter? Hammer, drill, saw, and many others. What are the tools of a Bible scholar? Textual criticism, historical criticism, redaction criticism, and many others. When we read Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, the Bible scholar could ask, do all manuscripts have the exact same words or are there variations? That's textual criticism, to ask questions on the original manuscripts. On the other hand, if the Bible scholar was to ask, who was the Pharaoh at that time and what do we know of him? That's historical criticism, asking questions from a historical perspective. So let us not be intimidated by these fancy words, textual criticism or whatever criticism. The idea here is these are simply tools and tools can be helpful or useless. The question Carson poses here is, can redaction criticism be a legitimate tool? Carson narrows the scope to the New Testament only. And that's very helpful because by narrowing the scope, it is easier for readers to understand the issue and how it is used. For example, uh, Carson writes that uh, we know, everybody knows, that there are overlaps between the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So how do we explain this overlap? One answer given by scholars is that there are overlaps because the three Gospels are using the same source using the same source material. So scholars then use source criticism to figure out what is the original source. Then, sometime later, form criticism appeared. The background behind this tool is uh, folklore. Okay? Folklorists and anthropologists who study uh, oral tradition in primitive cultures, they have categorized oral stories into specific uh, shapes or forms. Okay, So these are oral stories. So they have many different types of stories, each with their own characteristics, categorized under different forms. For example, a miracle story 
must look like a square. Okay, just bear with me for a moment as I try to simplify things. Okay, so if the miracle story is supposed to look like a square, and if we received it and it has the shape of a square, the form of a square, then form critics conclude that the story was faithfully transmitted so many generations ago, all right? But if the story, the miracle story that we received, does not have the correct form, I expected a square, but I got a pentagon. Then form critics conclude that the story was edited from the source. So how many generations ago the story was told and then over time it changed and changed and changed and it's missing some characteristics, some uh, characteristic is uh, uh, added, so now it's a bit different, so we say that uh, it has changed. So scholars use form criticism to categorize different parts of the Bible and try to determine whether it was faithfully transmitted or not. Okay, redaction criticism, which is the point of the essay, takes uh, source criticism and form criticism and takes another step forward. Because they notice that the New Testament authors uh, were not just passing stories on. Uh, instead, these uh, New Testament authors, they took the stories and edited them to express their theologies. Okay? This is the assumptions that Bible scholars are making, that, the, uh, that uh, Luke, or this, uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, they did not just pass the story on as they receive it. They edited them, so they are redactors. Okay? So they are redactors. So now scholars use reduction criticism to distinguish between what is traditional or authentic versus what is edited. Now, if you, after hearing all these things, you hear, you think that this uh, tool or these tools sounds iffy, it, it, I don't blame you. Um, for reduction criticism, uh, Carson lists 20 common criticisms, okay? So, 20 common issues regarding uh, the, their use. And I give you one example out of, out of the 20. Carson informs us that form criticism, remember the thing about the folklore, the oral stories? Well, this, uh, this method was developed by folklorists who were trying to get at the original oral stories when it was first spoken 300 years ago. However, unlike those oral stories from primitive cultures, the Gospels were, number one, written within 60 years of the events making it possible to check your source because the time span is so short within a generation. And number two, the Gospels were written in a literate culture. So people wrote things down. So the use of form criticism and hence redaction criticism is suspect because it's just not the same. And uh, like I said, there are 19... Um, uh, issues, 19 points that Carson, uh, 20 points that Carson makes, and uh, we don't have time to go through them, but it is uh, very uh, quite comprehensive how uh, Carson deals with this. He ends the essay with two examples of how reduction criticism is used. So he takes uh, verses from Matthew and then shows us how it's used and what are the issues that comes up. And then he ends with these uh, suggested guidelines. Carson um, gives the answer to his question. I quote, How legitimate or illegitimate is uh, reduction criticism as a literary tool? 
if its application to questions of authenticity depends on its roots in radical form criticism, the answer must surely be that reduction criticism is well-nigh useless. End quote. Yet, Carson knows that some scholars see some good in reduction criticism. They see the tool, they think that the tool can be used well, other people don't use it well, that's not the tool's fault. So there are some people who say that the tool can still be used. Carson responds, I quote, If conservative evangelical scholars adopt reduction criticism of the conservative variety and believing that it is an objective tool, ignore the doubtful historical assumptions that make up at least part of its pedigree, they are likely to find themselves in an intensely embarrassing position. Embarrassing, I end quote, embarrassing because if you say, okay, you use this tool and you find that this verse, this Bible verse I'm looking at is authentic because I use the reduction criticism and it shows me that this is authentic. Carson is saying, what happens when you are looking at a different verse, another verse, and redaction criticism tells you that it is unauthentic? What are you going to do? Are you going to just dismiss it? I mean, you are now in a, like he said, I quote, intensely embarrassing position. So, one may ask at this point, what does redaction criticism have to do with our everyday life for the everyday Christian? Plenty. Uh, unless you've been uh, hiding under a rock somewhere, you might have realized there is a fault line emerging, developing in the church because some say critical race theory can be an objective tool while others say it can't. Now, at this point, what uh, Carson wrote earlier, if we just make one small redaction, one small edit, it might help us see what, what the church needs today. Okay, Let me just say what Carson said, but with one small redaction. Carson said, if conservative, evangelical, if conservative evangelical scholars adopt, and this is where I change it, if they adopt critical race theory of the conservative variety and believing that it is an objective tool, ignore the doubtful historical assumptions that make up at least part of its pedigree, they are likely to find themselves in an intensely embarrassing position. Now, I know it's not right to use Carson's words here and apply it to a different tool, uh, critical race theory, instead of uh, reduction criticism. I, I understand that. Okay, so uh, it's not fair because it's a different tool with different assumptions and a different pedigree. I'm just saying that Carson's essay sets a standard for intelligent discourse. If someone was able to do uh, essays similar to what Carson wrote for reduction criticism, I think that the church will benefit. We can ask a new question today. Is critical race theory a legitimate or illegitimate tool? And we can go through it and hopefully reduce the temperature and arrive at a mutually edifying uh, position and bring clarity to a very divisive topic. Now, the next group of essays, okay, coming back to Scripture and Truth, the next group of essays is the historical essays. Uh, the first is titled, The Truth of Scripture and the Problem of Historical Relativity by Philip Hughes. 
Now, is it possible to learn, in this essay, the question is, is it possible to learn from history or are the events and people too far away for us to meaningfully learn from them? Now, the next three essays then proceed to combat the notion that scripture inerrancy was a recent innovation or a recent priority. Bromley uh, tells us what the church fathers believe. Augustine, Oregon, Tertullian, and others make their appearance here. Then, in the next essay, Godfrey tells us what the Reformers believe. We hear from Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Francis Turretin. And the last historical essay, written by Woodbridge and Baumer, tells us what 19th century Christians believe. We hear from A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield, and many others from that time. Now, for today's review, I have uh, chosen Robert Godfrey's essay as an example. His essay's title is Biblical Authority in the 16th and 17th Century, A Question of Transition. In 1979, Jack B. Rogers and Donald K. McKim wrote The Authority and Interpretation of the Bible, an Historical Approach. Uh, Godfrey writes regarding this book, uh, I quote, they, Rogers and McKim, insist that the greatest Christian thinkers, including the early reformers, fully recognize errors in the form of the Bible while maintaining the faithful fulfillment of its function. End quote. Now, what is at stake here? If Rogers and McKim are correct in one of their claims that Martin Luther and John Calvin did not subscribe to Scripture inerrancy, or take this doctrine as a high priority, then it implies Christians can hold to the doctrine of salvation and also believe that the Bible contains errors. Although if we concede the human writers can make errors in some places of the Bible, then it's also possible that they made errors in the doctrine of salvation and other doctrines. Do you see what's at stake? Now, the problem here is that how are we going to refute uh, Rogers and McKim's claims? They are not questioning the Bible at this point. They are, because if they did, we could just read the Bible. Instead, they are questioning Luther and Calvin. To check would require us to read much, if not all, of Martin Luther's, Luther's writings. To to read much, if not all, of John Calvin's writings. Thankfully, we have Christian historians to do that for us. Robert Godfrey offers a concise response to Rogers and McKim in his essay. First, Godfrey, uh, first in this section, Godfrey quotes Luther. So let us listen to what Luther has to say here. I quote, But everyone indeed knows that at times they, the fathers, the church fathers, have erred, have erred as men will. Therefore, I am ready to trust them only when they prove their opinions from Scripture, which has never erred. So you can see that, uh, end quote, so you can see here that Luther believes that the Scripture has no error. And so after establishing Luther's commitment to inerrancy, so there are some more uh, verses, some more uh, things that he wrote, uh, Godfrey responds to the Rogers and McKim proposal. Rogers and McKim say that Luther stressed God accommodated himself in speaking to man in the scriptures. What they're trying to say in this, uh, this idea, their point is, humans make errors. 
Yes, you agree. Humans make errors. The human language, the word human is there, so therefore it is prone to errors. Thus, for God to speak using human language means that there will be errors. You follow the, the logic, the reasoning. Godfrey tells us rightly that that is a leap in logic. And you can easily see this in the incarnation. So we have Jesus, he was human. Are we saying that he commits errors, sins, or whatever it is, that when he speaks, sometimes he cannot speak clearly, he will also make mistakes in his language? Um, then, in that case, what can we, what, what can we draw from uh, our knowledge of Jesus if he is also uh, a human, uh, fully capable of errors? So Rogers and McKim goes on, they have many other things to say. They point out that uh, Luther's uh, made comments on the lack of beauty in Scripture, that Luther has a list of recognized errors in Scripture, and he also questioned on the canonicity uh, within the Scripture. So, so there are a couple of other points, and all of them, Godfrey responds by showing what Luther and other uh, scholars on Luther have said. Now, after Luther, Godfrey turns and does the same for Calvin. What did Calvin wrote? What did Rogers McKean propose? And finally, how Godfrey responds. Now, one particularly damning piece of evidence is Calvin's declaration that Luke had made a manifest error. I quote, made a manifest error. Godfrey shows us the sentence in context. Calvin did not say that the Bible or that the Apostle Luke was in error. Instead, he suggested that the copyist was in error. So this is a textual criticism issue, not a scripture inerrancy issue. The rest of Godfrey's essay covers the Reformed Confessions and Catechisms, English Puritanism and Reformed Orthodoxy and Francis Turretin. All this written in order to decisively refute the Rogers McKim claim that the Reformers did not hold to scripture inerrancy. Now, apparently, the Rogers McKim book was the center of a firestorm when it was published 40 years ago. After reading Godfrey's short treatment on this topic, you may want to read for yourself the Rogers McKim book or even a book-length critique. John D. Woodbridge wrote Biblical Authority, a critique of the Rogers McKim proposal, 240 pages, published by Zondervan in 1982. Why would I want to, you ask? <laughs> For the same reason we learn and remind each other of World War I and II. Because humans, you see, commit errors, and we are always in danger of committing the same ones. We really should pay more attention to historians. The next and last group is the three theological essays consisting of Roger Nichols' The Biblical Concept of Truth. Paul Helms, Faith, Evidence, and the Scriptures, and J.I. Packer's Infallible Scripture and the Role of Hermeneutics. I pick Paul Helms' essay, and he begins his essay like this. I quote, Let us consider the following situation. Mrs. Jones is worried about her husband's loss of weight and his lassitude. With some difficulty, for her husband has never needed a doctor before, she persuades him to have a series of medical tests. The tests strongly support the view, the consultant tells her, that Mr. Jones has cancer. Mr. Jones says he has never felt fitter and that the consultant is probably incompetent. 
In this situation, there are three different kinds of questions that arise and need separate treatment. The question of whether or not Jones has cancer, the question of what evidence there is that he has cancer, and the question of what would persuade him to accept the diagnosis that he has cancer. These three questions are connected, but they are not the same question. Let us see why not. End quote. And that's how he begins his essay, which I thought was one of the stronger beginnings, stronger uh, starts for this uh, whole collection of essays. Later, uh, Helm connects the cancer scenario I just described, and he links it to the Bible. I quote, Exactly the same three questions arise about the Bible. Is the Bible the Word of God? What evidence is there for the Bible's being the Word of God? What evidence ought to persuade people that the Bible is the Word of God? End quote. This essay is not a mini version of Josh McDowell's uh, evidence that demands a verdict. Instead of listing and explaining all the evidence, Paul Helm is concerned to ask what sort of evidence might provide adequate answers. The key word here is what sort of evidence. And there are a few views. Externalism says that external evidence validates the Bible. For example, science and miracles. Helm asks, by what standard do we accept such evidence? We know that people are able to produce counterfeit signs and miracles. What is a reasonable evidence to you may not be reasonable for me. And come to think of it, doesn't externalism encourage would-be believers to insist on signs and wonders in order to believe? So contrary to externalism, there is fideism. You have heard of sola scriptura? It means by scripture alone. Sola fide is by faith alone. Fide is Latin for faith. Now, fideism is, I quote, the view that the proof of evidence that the Bible is the word of God is not to be found in a set of external criteria, but elsewhere. The contrast established by fideism is not necessarily between faith and reason, but between faith and external proof, end quote. I thought his uh, comment here that uh, fideism is not a contrast between faith and reason is a very important one, uh, as we shall see. There are three types of fideism, uh, in, uh, at least described by Helm. The first is, I don't need evidence, I just need to have faith. And presumably, because there is no need for evidence, Helm wastes no time elaborating on this view. The second type of fideism has Helm discussing Alvin Platinga's paper, Is Belief in God Rational? Now, this part can be very philosophical and abstract, so I summarize as best as I can. And I think it means, uh, the second type of fideism means that my faith is so foundational, so basic, so indivisible, there is nothing else beneath the foundation. There are no further reasons or whys for my faith. Helm then explains why he finds this to be unsatisfactory and he moves to, his, to the third view, which is his view. And the view is, I quote, The Bible is the word of God, is a matter of its own evidence. And there are external arguments leading to this view, end quote. Are you confused? 
because I was, <laughs> because I was reading pages and pages on why uh, on Helm explaining why externalism is wrong, and here the word external arguments jumps out at me as if he suddenly supports it. Then Helm explains that externalism and the other two types of fideism share one thing in common: they all consider evidence apart from the Bible. The Bible itself is never considered in their arguments. Whereas Helm's view, okay, that is different from the rest, is that we must take the Bible as evidence. And there is evidence outside the Bible to support this view. Okay, okay, let us hear from Helm's own words. I quote, Considering the content of the scriptures means not merely looking at what the scriptures say about themselves, but examining the force or impact of the scriptures. Part of the reason for believing that a person is a king may be that he says that he is a king, but the evidence that he is a king is much stronger if he is seen exercising the prerogatives of a king. It is not simply that the scriptures say that they are the revelation of God that is the evidence for their being so, but also that they function as the word of God. Let us try to look at this in a little more detail. End quote. So he gives us uh, quite a few details, examples explaining it. And as I read Helm's explanation, it dawns on me that Helm is trying to explain the way the Holy Spirit creates belief. <laughs> and how wonderful is that? Um, there is more, a lot more uh, in his essay. But let me just like one quote here. I quote, The internal testimony of the Spirit is not to be thought of as in some way short-circuiting the objective evidence or making up for the deficiencies in external scriptural evidence, nor as providing additional evidence nor as merely acting as a mechanical stimulus. But, okay, here's what he's trying to say, but the Holy Spirit, okay, is making the mind capable of the proper appreciation of the evidence, seeing it for what it is, and in particular, heightening the mind's awareness of the marks of divinity present in the text in such a way as to produce the conviction that this text is indeed the product of the divine mind and therefore to be relied on utterly. End quote. Now, like this paragraph, as is true for many other paragraphs in the whole book, uh, may need to be read and reread a couple of times to really um, get hold of it. Um, and scholars uh, like Helm and others need to be precise. And here, Helm is no exception. Helm is aware that he could be charged with uh, subjectivism, okay, being where your religious experience is very subjective. And so there is, but he wants to say that there is an objective reality. So he says that the subjective component is in the person, okay, but there is an objective component, which is the text and its meaning. Uh, it is something public, it is something verifiable. So it's very objective. Okay? There is a truth component in that text. And uh, he explains, all right? So let me just quote him again. Um, he writes, But surely this appeal to religious experience, um, earlier he said this a testimony of the Holy Spirit, remember? So surely this appeal to religious experience is purely subjective, isn't it? 
Not necessarily. If an engineer predicts the collapse of a bridge and it collapses, his prediction has physical objective confirmation. But physical objectivity is not the only kind of objectivity. Suppose Smith wonders whether Robinson really dislikes him. If Robinson does dislike Smith, then in a sense this is subjective. Something about Robinson's state of mind. But in another sense, it has objectivity. It has objectivity if, for example, it is sustained in varied sets of circumstances, if it is expressed in different ways. In the case of religious experience, similar sorts of tests apply, and a person may become rationally convinced of the objectivity, i.e. the reality of God's love, even though God does not have objective physical reality. End quote. So, the feeling of being loved is a subjective experience. Okay? But the people and events that produce that subjective feeling have an objective reality. Wonderful, isn't it? You can quote Helm for Valentine's Day or your wedding anniversaries. I hope, uh, coming to this conclusion, I hope my choice of Carson, Godfrey and Helms' deep and thought-provoking essays will entice you to read the rest of the collection. And honestly, if the book wasn't free, I would never have gotten it. I would never have read it. Scripture inerrancy is simply not a current issue in my side of the world, and the book cover was attractive 30 years ago. However, to my surprise, in Scripture and Truth, I found scholars assembled to fight a now-forgotten battle. Like many forgotten battles, we don't realize the debt we owe to these men, and all like them, who fought to secure the doctrine of Scripture, and so the many doctrines that flow from it. This is a Reading and Reader's Review of Scripture and Truth. Edited by D.A. Carson and John D. Woodbridge. Currently priced at $25.99 in Amazon, but free for November from Logos. Logos is offering two free books for free this month. The other one is Making Sense of the Trinity, Three Crucial Questions by Millard J. Erickson. Now, the best thing about free stuff is you don't have to choose between the books. You can just get both of them today and read them later. And if you miss this deal because you did not hear this podcast, uh, make sure to subscribe to Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you so that you will never miss a deal again. Thank you for listening.